Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flares here with a special episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. I am not doing my Lazy DM prep show today, which means this show can go as long as two hours. And my intent is to get through all of the remaining questions that we have for the November Patreon Q&A thread. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a thread, a post asking for questions that I can discuss on this show or as a separate video or just discuss directly on Patreon. And today I have about 12 remaining questions for November that I'm going to go through during the show. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you are a patron of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for supporting this show. If you want to become a Patreon, if you want to become a patron of Sly Flourish, you can do it by going to patreon.com slash Flourish or looking in the show notes below. And patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, special guidelines and inspiration for your D&D game, multiple adventures, multiple exclusive adventures just for patrons. But most of all, you are helping support shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you very much. Yeah, so I have a pretty thin agenda today. We'll start with the Lazy DM Companion update. This week, if you are a backer of the Lazy DM's Companion, the Kickstarter that I launched in October, we finally got everything squared away. All the funding moved. Uh, all the money was transferred to all the people that needed to get it transferred to. And the backer kit survey is ready to go. So we had it ready this past week, but we thought that launching it Wednesday before Thanksgiving in the United States, probably not the best time to get a good response for the survey. So instead we hung on to, oh, and the other problem is that a lot of the support staff at Backerkit are, were away during the weekend. So far better to launch it on Monday. So I had expected to launch it last week. We are instead launching it this week, but Monday it's ready to go. Backerkit has already taken a look at it. They're good with it. Nord, Chris from Nord and myself, we both have taken a look at it and we're good with it. So we're going to do the smoke test in which they send a random set to a bunch of people. That's going out on Monday. We're gonna wait a day or so to make sure that everything is smooth. There's no weirdness. There's no strange products or anything like that. And then it will be launched for the other group uh, for, for the remaining backers on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. So you should get the survey next week. I have the latest draft of the companion in hand. I got it back from Scott Gray this past weekend and went through it yesterday and it looks great. We had tiny little things here and there, just tiny little things that we're fixing, but the text looks excellent. The layout looks great. It really looks solid. So um, very excited about that. My plan is once the survey goes out, once we've handled the backer kit survey and we've gotten everything from that, probably a week or so after that, maybe a week or two after the survey has gone out, uh, we will have a draft preview that everybody that backed the, the Kickstarter will be able to get. This will be the PDF of the Lazy DMs Companion without necessarily all of the, without all the art and without all the maps. So we are still commissioning maps and art for the book. It's probably going to take until mid-January to get all of the maps and all of the art back. So at that point in mid to late January is when the book should be, then when the PDF of the book will be done and shipped to all backers of the kick. Yeah, we're awaiting maps and art. We are, but the draft looks really good and everybody's going to have access to that within the next couple of weeks, I would say. And that will be, it's a fully usable version of the book. Everything is in it that you would use. The only thing it's missing is our maps and art. So very excited for that. It's looking really solid. I love it. I'm just, I'm so excited. Will you put your hand-drawn art maps example in the preview as placeholders? Probably not. They're pretty janky. And 
going through the trouble of bothering to put those in the layout seems like a wasted effort when we're just going to put the new ones in as soon as they're ready. So I think just dropping them in is probably not the right answer. They are available to patron backers, though. They're drafts I've been throwing up in the patron discord if you wanted to see what they look like. And I'll probably put them out as previews in the Kickstarter and Kickstarter update. So I have another thing to announce. Uh, patron Patrons of Sly Flourish know about this because we talked about, I sent the email out last week, but myself, my, my wife and I have started up the, the Sly Flourish after school grant program. If you are running a D&D club for children of high school age or younger, and you want a little bit of support, you can do so by, you can probably get it through the Sly Flourish after school grant program. There are, the, the intent is to give after school clubs, either those associated with schools or associated with some kind of organization that gets kids together to play D&D. If you are putting together a D&D group or any RPG, really, it doesn't have to be D&D. Let us know and we will give you or $250 grant through PayPal. And you will also get access to digital copies of all of my books for any of the DMs that you have in your group. To qualify, there's a few things that you need to do in order to qualify. One, you have to be able to accept PayPal for funding. I've done this before and trying to do it with checks and trying to do it with other things is just too big of a hassle. Far easier is you got to be able to accept PayPal. Two, you have to be able to describe your particular RPG group or club. Pretty easy. Three, you have to somehow prove that you're associated with this club, whether it's a faculty ID, whether it's an email address coming from the, the school, whether it's some something to show us that you actually are running a club and, that, and, and who it's for and things like that. And then four, you have to uh, post your acceptance of the grant from Sly Flourish to any social media site of your choice. It could be anything. It could be you standing in your front yard with a sign. Whatever you want to do, there has to be some acceptance, some public acceptance of the, of the fact that you uh, received this grant. So we are limited to 40 such grants. I think we've done eight, seven or eight of them so far. And once the 40 grants are out, it will be complete. We will be done until we do it next time. If you are interested in this, please take a look at this page, slyflourish.com slash grants. It is in the show notes. If you are running any kind of after school program and would like some support for your program, you can email after uh, grants at slyflourish.com and give the information that we have up here and we will we will help you out. So yeah, my this is something that I've done. I did this after the Kickstarter for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and obviously it seemed like a good thing to do after the incredible success we had with the Lazy DM's Companion. So we wanted to help. This is our way of trying to help the community out and trying to bring the joy of role-playing games to more people elsewhere. And who better to do that than the people that are actually running the clubs and doing it doing it for kids. So that is the after that is the Sly Flourish After School Grant Program. Another interesting thing. So I've talked before about my concern of our dependence upon D&D Beyond, right? D&D Beyond is a wonderful tool. It works really well. All my players except one use it. And I use it for DMing now. I use it for looking up stuff, looking up content. I get all of the books available in it. And it's really useful. And I was under the assumption that most people used D&D Beyond. And I felt like that limits our access to third-party material in particular. D Beyond's biggest limitation in my mind is that it does not support third-party material. You can't get stuff from Cobalt Press. You can't get stuff from Money Cook Games. You can't get stuff from Goodman Games or any of the other major producers and any of the other major third-party producers of content. And so then I was curious, is that true? Is it true that, that most people use D&D Beyond? Is it really that limiting? So I said, I, I need to ask. I should find out. So I ran two polls on the same day, one on YouTube and one on Twitter. And I got the results of these polls back and I was surprised. I was genuinely surprised. So the top one, this was done, I don't know, it was done last week. It says three days ago. Eventually I'm gonna have to get a date 
tied to these things. I was on the 21st of November is when I launched this poll because I launched it at the same time for both groups. I have 2,500 or about 2,400 votes on YouTube, which shows me that YouTube is actually a great place to put up polls. I have about just under 1,100 votes on Twitter. So this is a lot of people. Now, granted, all the qualifications about self-selected surveys apply. This is not, this is a biased survey. It's people who follow me. It's people who were checking out my YouTube channel or people that were seeing it on Twitter. This is not a pure random sample of DMs across all of D&D. And, and, and it'd be interesting to think, well, what if it was? What, would we, what difference would we see? And the answer came back to what's interesting is that they were exactly the opposite of one another. The YouTube and Twitter poll were exactly the opposite of, of one another. 44% on YouTube said they do not, that they do use D&D Beyond regularly and 56% said they do not. And on Twitter, it was the opposite. 56% said yes and 44% said no. I thought that was really interesting. I don't know why. There, that's a pretty big difference. That's more than a 10% difference between yes and no in opposite directions. So I, I can't explain it. There's lots of theories. We can all come up with theories. Don't hark, if you're familiar with the term harking, hypothesis after the facts are known, that you don't wanna look at the results and then come up with a story about why those results happened. What you can do is create a new hypothesis. I hypothesize that this is true. And then you come up with a new test and then test that test, right? Why are the people on YouTube different than the people on Twitter? I, I could say, oh, I bet it's because more people are on YouTube that don't actually necessarily play D&D, right? That they are watching a lot of D&D or they're watching a lot of streaming shows. And so they kind of watch stuff about D&D to kind of understand it, but they're not really playing or more so, right? It's enough that, that it would say that more people aren't using to be on because they don't use any tool to play D&D. I could come up with that. I don't think that is an explanation. And instead I could say, now I need to test and put up a poll on both platforms that say, do you regularly play D&D? And then if I see that same kind of slice, I, that would tell me that something is different. Regardless of all of this, though, basically you could say about half, right? If you take the, these two polls and kind of mash them together and, and, and just divide them, you could say that about half of people use D&D Beyond. So it's not as pervasive as, as I thought. My, my going in hypothesis was that about 80% of people use D&D Beyond, which looking back seems obviously too high. Asking players, so I said this is a DM, Prehistoric Lizard says asking players would bump that percent significantly. If you look, it says this poll is for D&D &D DMs and players. And it says that for both polls. So it was asking players. But I think that there's definitely less players that will follow these feeds. So this is certainly more DM centric than I think the otherwise. I would expect fewer people use D&D Beyond than even these polls outline because people that I would expect to generally follow this are enthusiasts and enthusiasts probably more likely to use D&D Beyond. That is another hypothesis. I have not tested that. And it's hard to test because there's the group of people I can't access. I don't, I can't figure it out. But I think what this tells me is, okay, roughly half, right? We're going to say half or maybe even fewer, but I'm going to go with half. About half people use D&D Beyond. So that means it's not as pervasive as I thought, which means there is more room for third-party third party products to be able to get onto someone's table because D&D Beyond has this sort of wall against third-party content. doesn't matter that much if half the people are not even using D&D Beyond. So I thought that was interesting. That actually is a little, I'm happy about these results. I think that's good because I don't want to feel like it is ubiquitous, right? That, that a single tool, 
a single digital tool is so ubiquitous for D&D that like if something happens with that tool, if wizards decide to pull their licenses, if they continue to not support third party stuff, that's limiting D&D because everybody's so dependent upon this tool. It shows me that people aren't as dependent on the tool. Half the people don't use it or half the people that, are, that I polled don't use it. So I thought that was, I thought that was an interesting, an interesting result from that poll. I'll post the, I'll post the link to that page in the show notes. Uh, below if you want to take a look at the specific answers so that is it all right we are 12 minutes in and we are going to start hitting patreon questions so every month i post a thread on the sly flourish patreon discord asking for questions that we want to talk about on this show or that we want to do that i would do a separate video on or questions that i'll answer just directly on patreon itself i don't hit every single question that's there but i hit a lot of them and a lot of the more in-depth ones I'll, i'll capture and some of them i'll build a topic and i'll do a video a short video on youtube a tip on YouTube. Other times I will just talk about it here on the show. And these are the ones we're going to hit. Tim S. How do you calculate how powerful your group is when trying to create encounters? Do you find their most powerful attacks and do calculations? Or is it just guessing based on past encounters? I'm not much of a tactical DM and I would love to get better at evaluating my player's threat. This is an excellent question. And I, it comes around when we talk about encounter encounter balance and encounter design in D&D. I promote the lazy encounter balance, the lazy encounter benchmark, right? The the deadly encounter benchmark as a quick thumb, a quick rule of thumb for figuring out encounter balance when you don't really have other information. And I've described it, the links, I will post a link to the deadly encounter benchmark, but I'll describe it because it's only one sentence long. And basically, it's a couple sentences. But first, you build an encounter that makes sense for the situation first, right? You you look at what's going on in the world. You look at what's going on in the story. You look at the area that they're in the game. And you decide what monsters make sense for this particular area first. Then second, you want to determine whether or not that encounter may or may not be deadly. Easy fights are perfectly fine. And you generally don't have to do a lot of work to figure out if it's going to be an easy fight. Instead, you're mostly worried, is this fight unintentionally deadly? Is it going to be really risky? And I I didn't realize it. And the way you do that is by this quick equation. An encounter may be deadly if the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one fourth of the sum total of character levels or one half if those character levels are above fifth level. So basically, if you have a group of monsters that you've set, you add up all their challenge ratings and you put that number aside, and then you take all the character levels of all the characters, right? If you have five fourth level characters, that's 20, and you divide that by four, in which case five. If you ha- if your total, if the total of, and, and it's five level fours, five level fours, so that you're gonna do it by fourth. That means if the total challenge rating of the monsters is greater than five, is potentially deadly. It might not be deadly, but it's potentially deadly. You're in the red zone, right? Your gauge is in the red. If it's higher level, let's say, let's go with, we'll make it our lives easy and say five tenth level characters, that's 50, right? You sum up all the character levels is 50. In that case, you divide by two because they're above fifth level and that's 25. If you look at all the monsters you're gonna throw at the characters and if the CR of all the monsters together is greater than 25, the encounter may be deadly. Again, maybe deadly. And at 10th level, they're probably pretty robust. I bet you could go significantly above 25 CRs worth. So you start by picking the monsters that make sense, and then you look at it. So that, I always like to talk about that because I think it's a really fast and easy way to generally gauge a combat encounter in 5th edition of D&D. But once you've gotten past that, once your capabilities of your characters, and once you understand what they bring to the table, and what they don't bring to the table. Now you can tune things a little better. And that's what Tim is talking about in this question. He's saying, 
when you're trying to look at the encounters, when do you get past challenge rating and level, which are probably the two best indicators. They're not great indicators, but they're probably the two best indicators. If you had to pick one, level is a really good de determination of how powerful somebody is. And challenge rating is generally a good determination of how powerful monsters, more so than other things. You can't just look at hit points, for example. If you're gonna pick any one number, those are probably the best, but they're not great. Other numbers, but when you can add other numbers in, like how much damage do the monsters do? How many hit points do they have? How high is their armor class? Do they have any other weird effects? This is when you can start to understand that a monster is more or less dangerous than its challenge rating might, might equate. So like a Banshee who can scream and drop people to zero hit points, they are actually more dangerous than their challenge rating might look, especially at higher levels because their damage scales as characters get more powerful. The more hit points you have, the more hit points a Banshee is taking away. So Banshees actually have a, their challenge rating is, is, a, is misleading. Others like Shadows, same thing. Shadows are CR one half, but they drain strength. So they can be very dangerous. The same is true with characters. When you look at your characters, you, you, you wanna see what they're like. If you're trying to figure it out, throw some ogres at them. Watch them handle a, a group of ogres. If they're, they're higher levels, if they're above fifth level, about three or four ogres, right? Let's say you have four seventh level characters and you wanna generally gauge, okay, they just said level seven. I wanna see what they're like. And one thing you can do, and depending, of course, it makes more sense if, it makes more sense if uh, it makes sense in the story, but let's just for sake say, hey, ogres. So four seventh level characters, uh, that's 28, right? 7, 14, 20, 7, 14, 21, 28. 28 divided by two is 14. So you can actually throw a bunch of ogres at your character. You have a 14, that's seven ogres. I'm probably not gonna throw seven, but you could, you could go with five, right? Throw five ogres at your characters and see what they do. Ogres are great because they just do damage and take damage. They have very low AC, pretty decent hit points for how big they are. They do a lot of damage, 13 damage with plus six to hit. So they can actually kind of hit. So you can throw a bunch of ogres and see what they do. Does, does, do the characters banish two of them? Do they throw hypnotic pattern on them? And like four of the five ogres are completely incapacitated. What are the things that the characters do to handle these ogres? Do they just pour out damage and, and wipe them out super quickly with high damage spells? This gives you an idea of what the characters are capable of. And then you have an understanding of, okay, yeah, sure. My characters are four seventh level characters, but they cast banish a lot. And when you cast banish, that's a lot of monster taken off the table very quickly. So maybe you treat them like they're a level higher, or maybe you, there's two ways to scale it and scale that encounter building thing. One is treat them like they're higher level than they are. Two is treat them like there's more characters than they are. If they have NPCs or they have their action economy is particularly good, you can treat them like they have uh, more characters. That scales much heavier than increasing level. So that's a good way to test things out. And the idea of guessing based on past encounters is a good one, right? We can think about this as like a Bayesian approach towards encounter building. What's the base rate, right? And our base rate is the lazy encounter benchmark. And then how do we tweak that encounter benchmark based on the actual results we're seeing during the game? what happens? Do they, seventh level is a big jump, right? That's that jump from sixth to seventh level is almost as big as the jump from four to fifth level because you get a lot of crowd control spells like banish that just get rid of things. Polymorph and changes a lot. A lot of things change when you hit that level. So you don't have to be a tactical DM. It's mostly just taking note of what they do and being okay with them st stomping on encounters. And you can just keep turning that dial, right? Turn the encounter dial up. If you really want hard fights, maybe you treat them like they're a level higher. If you want it really hard, maybe you treat them like they have one more character than they actually do. And then you're building off of that. And you're, what you're gonna find is that the deadly benchmark, your green to red threshold goes up.
so yeah, I, th I think I would not spend a lot of time doing a lot of math. The more detailed into the math you get, the tighter you're hanging on and you should probably loosen up. Instead, get a general idea for, instead get a general idea for how people are. Tim, I hope that answers your question. Jens L, I'm a big fan of the Eberron campaign setting and have been running a few grand adventure style campaigns. However, I also really like film noir, excellent, and I would like to explore the noir aspect of Eberron. The whole private eye gets tied up in a huge conspiracy and Sharn kind of game. My problem with this is that I feel like D&D 5e rules are not really suitable for that. As soon as the characters hit tier two, they essentially become superhero equivalents in the context of a typical noir plot. Do you have any experience with running low power D&D campaigns without just halting level progression altogether? I was thinking of using the Genesis RPG system developed by Fantasy Flight Games, now restructured into Edge, I believe, for a game like that. I had the feeling that this might work really well with your secrets and clues process because every dice roll has unforeseen consequences. Coming up with on the spot with fitting interpretation of the results can be challenging, but if the results can be pulled from a list of secrets and clues, things would be much easier. Do you have any experience with Genesis system and do you have thoughts on how this would work with the Lazy DM prep? I do not. So I, I was going to do homework and take a look at the Genesis system, but I haven't been able to. So I actually don't know what the Genesis system or the edge system is. So I can't answer that part of it. I will. It's probably something I will take a look. I think you can still run a noir style game in D&D 5th edition. I'm a fan of 5th edition, obviously. So I'm not going to talk too much about running Eberron. I think you should give it a shot, right? Try using other systems or try stealing ideas from other systems and bringing them in. Uh, I'm going to push back a little bit on the idea that you can't really do, or, do like a noir style plot line with when they hit tier two. I think you can. I feel like my Eberron campaign had and hung on well to that noir style thing. It was very, I, I had taken a lot from like Hitchcock. Uh, I had taken a lot of ideas from a lot of movies that I really wanted to embrace the the Maltese Falcon slash Raiders of the Lost Ark aspect that I think Eberron really shines in. And just because characters have access to like really high level spells and powers and stuff like that, as soon as they get access to invisibility or speak with dead, you think all the plots are brought zone of truth. That breaks all the ideas. And I don't think that's true. It just changes things. And it, and you got to remember that as the characters have access to all this power, so do their enemies. And so does everyone else. So you're going to have use of anti-magic cone. You're going to have uses of spells that, that get away from scrying. There's a lot of different ways to do this. And it's interesting to think, when we think through the head of our villains and, and think about what they're doing, and they recognize, people know about magic in Eberron. It's not a surprise when somebody puts up a zone of truth. So when the villain is aware of this, what are they doing to deal with that? Or how are they doing misdirection? How are they creating things? And I, I think you can still, I, I, I know this works because I feel like I did it. And I did it up through like 12th or 13th level in my Eberron game, where it was still very high action and lots of fighting and lots of running around and fighting big monsters and stuff like that. But I had a fair bit of intrigue going on. And it, it was really fun to watch the characters inter interwoven with the intrigue and changing the storyline. So I think it takes, it takes a different look at how to run your game to keep and capture the noir aspect. But I would challenge the idea that you can't really do it above fifth level because I think you can. And I think the interesting thing is when the villains have access to the same kind of spells and powers that the characters have access to and how that changes things, right? Could they put false bodies around with lies woven into their psyche so that when you cast Speak With Dead, you get the wrong stuff? Is there a way, do they find that they're burning all the bodies so there's nothing left to cast Speak With Dead on because they know that 
can be used. There's interesting aspects to do that. As far as using another RPG for it, sure, I'll give it a shot. And if you know the system well and you want to try it, I think that would be a fine way to go. I'll have to take a look at the Genesis system, the Edge or, or Edge, the Edge system, and learn more about it. Yeah, Merrick90 says Jessica Jones might be a good source of inspiration for high power noir. Yeah, think about is there a noir science fiction or noir style fantasy science fiction or superhero movies? What can you kind of capture from that? So I think you can get there. It's interesting. One of the things that's interesting about Eberron is that it mixes high action with noir. So Raiders of the Lost Ark isn't a noir movie, but Maltese Falcon is, right? And a lot of the Hitchcock movies, my favorite, Notorious, the movie Notorious is a fantastic Hitchcock movie. It's hard to find, but it's really good. I think it's free on YouTube and it's outstanding. And capturing that kind of stuff capturing the aspects of noir with Raiders of the Lost Ark is really where I think Eberron shines. And so you can do that sort of high action and then intrigue and high action and intrigue. I think that works. I think that works really well. Jens L, I hope that answered your question. Bram B asks, I have been running a game for over a year and a half, 72 sessions. Congratulations. Over the course of it, the hex crawl that I started with faded away and turned into something different. That often happens with hex crawls. Building a keep in the world has collided with the other planes. Very cool. They just reached 16th level. And now things are going slow. I feel like my characters are getting bored with, or players are getting bored with their characters and the challenges they are facing are too great for them. How do I keep them going? This would be the first campaign that could reach 20th level. How do I make the final levels more exciting? So this is where I think it's really important to remember the tiers of play and what the themes of those tiers are. Tier one, first to fourth level, uh, Solicious. Oh, good. So you can, I'm, I'm glad you were here. You can, uh, as I'm describing it, if parts, if I'm hitting your question correctly, great. If you want to shift, that also looks great. Uh, on the last question, DVS Solicious says altered carbon. So yeah, on the idea of noir with lots of powers, take a look at the, the TV show Altered Carbon. So they're scared, they're scared of the city of brass planted in their neighborhood. That's interesting. Yeah. So there seems like there's two aspects to this, right? One is you said, I feel like the players are getting bored with their characters. That's one problem. Uh, and the challenges they're facing feel too great for them. So are they facing things that they feel like are too grand? And that could be different than what I was going to recommend. But we start with the tiers of play and the expectations of the tiers of play. And this comes from the Dungeon Master's Guide. The DMG describes this. There's essentially four tiers of play for, for the fifth edition of D&D. Tier one to four is local heroes. The bartender has giant rats that have infested his basement and he needs somebody to go down there and take care of the giant rats. That's your first level kind of adventure. And the first to fourth level is handling the problems around the local town right? This is bandits are stopping people on the roads. There's that old ruin and somebody got lost. There's that weird artifact that we heard about in an old cave, but nobody wants to go out there and figure it out. Local stuff is your first to fourth level. Fifth to 10th level is regional, right? This is kingdoms. You went to the big city, yeah, nobles know who you are. There's kind of bigger political things going on. There's armies that are dealing with. There's, there's bigger threats that are generally threats to the region. The hobgoblin prince has come back and has now infused himself with demonic magic and is leading a, a army of demonic-infused hobgoblins against the local town. That's kind of your tier two kind of situation. Tier three is almost global, right? This is major threats. The Lich King has risen up in his citadel and is now sending undead armies to multiple cities. This is, think about tier three is really where like the heart of uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of the Tiamat and Rise of Tiamat really builds up. The Dragon Queen is coming to the region. The 
cult of the dragon has taken over multiple places. They've infiltrated politics. They've, they have multiple great worm dragons that have now come out of their caves and are supporting the dragon queen and her rise. And if you fail, Tiamat is coming to the world. That is a tier three problem. It feels almost like a tier four problem, right? But it's not, that's a tier three problem. Tier four is typically big Polanier things going on. The Lich Queen is sending an armada of, of Githyanki warships and dragons to multiple worlds to destroy them because of the Mind Flayer influence. Meanwhile, the Mind Flayers have come out of the shadows and are slowly taking over world after world. Big problems. Oftentimes, the gods are involved, right? Orcus, the, the, the Prince of Undeath, has figured out how to take a shard of power and become the true god of death, taking over the role of the god of death. This is big stuff. If you're familiar with high level, high tier stuff in fourth edition, that's definitely because fourth edition went to 30th level. There was a lot of that sort of tier four content in there. So you could probably take a look at some of the major high level adventures that other groups have done. There's a there's definitely some big planier adventures you can get on the DMs Guild. I ran the Throne of Bloodstone is a really cool one. Queen of the Demon Web Pits. These probably aren't adventures you can just pick up and run, but they they can help to give you an idea about the kind of adventures that you can run. Now, if they are and and Salicious Bram, if you want to help clarify, if your players don't seem to be grabbing onto those hooks. Because they're interested in, in like that giant plane hopping stuff is not really for them. There's a couple of things you can do. One is you can kind of ignore that, that leap into tier four and just keep the tier three threats going and make them bigger and bigger, i.e. something really bad is happening in the world. Tarasks are getting free. Take a look at like, like James and Ercaso's invasion of the planet of Tarasks, right? That is a good way for tier four content to show up in your city, in your local city. You can do that. But if they're not grabbing onto the tier four hooks, so one answer is you could say, is it time to retire? Is it time to, it would be really fun to go to 20th level. And that's great. The other ones you can level up really quickly, get them from 16th to 20th level in five adventures and just make them really big standalone adventures. I kind of did this. I had my characters basically just went on a monster hunt, but the monsters were the elemental princes, each one of the elemental princes. And they did one right after the other. And they were sent by, they were sent by Loth, right? Loth gave them access to go to each of the elemental planes and face the elemental princes in their home world. Demon prince hunting could be a good monster hunt, right? There's five demon princes. They have formed a new alliance. They're trying to do something. We need you to stop all five of them. You have to go to five different layers of the abyss and destroy the demon prince that rules over it. Those are big tier four threats. I'm planning on power leveling them and have everything wrapped up quickly in epic way. I think that would work. I think the idea of you can shrink those final levels down and just like they level every session. You do like a four hour, just write an adventure that's set in a particular area. That's And that's your 16th to 17th level adventure. And you could do like kind of one for each one. You could do like a hub world. Just do, do, they're in it. They have a hub. The hub gives them access to these places. Think about which ones are coolest. Like where do they want to go? That could be really cool. And of course, challenging characters at that level, that's a whole other problem, right? That's a whole other question. Turn that, jack that dial up, right? Multiple Balors. And expect one big fight per level because they're going to take forever. High level battles take a long time. High level challenging fights take a long time. So Bram, thank you for that question. I hope that I hope that answered the question that you got. Dustin B asks, do you have an opinion on what I perceive to be a relative lack of interesting things for martial characters to do on their turn? It seems once you get to higher levels, the options kind of fall short of fight for fighters. 
I love a fighter, but just increasing the number of attacks in a round seems like it can devolve into just attacking, moving, and maybe some type of bonus action. Are there any third-party resources that you know of that can open up the fighter to be able to use some 3.5-ish combat maneuvers and vary up their turn? So what's interesting is the player's handbook has the Battlemaster fighter, and the Battlemaster fighter with just the player's handbook has lots of options. I've played Battlemaster fighters, and I never... I never felt like I ran out of stuff to do with my Battlemaster. I felt on my repost attack, I had things to do when people hit me. I had ways to, to interpose myself into, into you know, between two different combatants. I had multiple things I could do with my bonus actions. I had ways to kind of knock people down or push people or goad people to attack me. I felt like I had a lot of stuff. So my first, oh, and it, so it says, yeah, without going Battlemaster every time. Sure. So I get it. This is fighters are too boring. What's your answer? Except you're not allowed to say Battlemaster. But I'm going to say Battlemaster. Well, then the other question is there are other fighter builds in other first party D&D content that I have used, but I would recommend taking a look at third party stuff. I unfortunately, not unfortunately, but my focus is on DM stuff. So I don't really take a hard look at a lot of character driven stuff. I am sure that you are not alone in this. And I am sure many designers have built many different things. Somebody brought up that advanced 5e level up 5e, uh, level up advanced 5e, the new 5e variant put out by N world publishing has stuff for this. So you might take a look, but I like, I'm playing the rune in my DD game. I'm playing the rune knight and as my player, and that one has a lot of different things you can do. That isn't just fighting. If your players, so if you're a player, that's one thing right? If you are a DM, what are some things you can do to help with this? One is op open up and bring in other subclasses that fit the theme of your world and that may offer these other options. Talk to the player and see if they're actually bored because they might be pretty happy. You can also give them interesting magic items that have like single use abilities of spells that give them some of these spells that other characters might not have or might not even bother to use. But because this character can now do it, maybe on a once a day sword. I love giving martial characters access to spells that aren't typically used by spellcasters, but they can do it because it's a, tied to an item. I see them use them a lot. I, I, I see them in play. That works really. The Eldritch Knight. Yeah, some people, there are other builds out there. And then there's, if you want to play a martial character that has lots of spellcasting ability, the, what's the Warlock? There's a Warlock build that is focused on martial weapons. So that one you're, and, and wizards, you have the wizard builds Bladesinger, right? The Bladesinger wizard is a martial wizard. So there are ways, a Hexblade. So Hexblade for the warlock, the Bladesinger for the wizard. These are ways to take a class that has lots of uh, the war domain priest. These are ways for, to pick another class that does martial stuff, but has lots of other abilities to it. So I think that there's a fair bit of options, even in first party. But I think, I, are, are there any third party resources that I know of? Not really, because I, I don't dig deep into different character options, but I'm sure they're out there. And I think some research can probably bring up some ones that are good and not too not, not too unbalanced. So I hope that answers your question. I know you said not Battlemaster, but Battlemaster is really fun. I loved my Battlemaster. Now I would definitely play it. I didn't play it up to 20. So I don't know why it's like all the way up. But it was fun. Joe M says, I have found that my players tend to hoard one-use magic items like non-healing potions and relics just in case. Or they acquire so many that they get tossed in a bag of holding and never thought of again. Do you have any advice for incentivizing the party to actually use them? It seems like you give out at least one per week. Do you find your players usually use most of them? And I also, this one, I put these two questions. I put this these two questions together. The other one, Robert S. asks, how do we get players to use the great magic items you give them? My players forget and hardly ever use the cool stuff I give to them. Two, maybe related to one, 
but my players are hoarders and they never use the cooler, higher level spells. It's constantly leveled up cantrips. I'm sick of Firebolt and Eldritch Blast. Even if I give them obvious situations to use other spells and abilities, they seem to default to the same old stuff. I think part of the problem is a lack of experience, a high level play. We always start at one and usually end at eighth or ninth before restarting a campaign and we don't play enough. Average once a month. Any thoughts on getting my players to use their cool stuff without the obvious direct prompting from the DM? Don't ever discount obvious prompting from the DM. I think if it's going to make it more fun, go ahead and bring it up. Talk to them. I have some players that are definitely not super proficient in their characters, and I don't have a problem offering suggestions. So that that works. As far as like getting people to use the magic items, particularly relics, there's there's carrot and stick things you can do. One of the stick things, so the idea of relics actually came from the concept of ciphers. For me, I'm sure they've existed before, but for me, the idea of relics came to existence because of ciphers from Numenera. These idea of single-use powerful artifacts that had like weird information about them, weird, weird lore behind them that could cast a spell. And they could cast a spell once. And what I like is when the spell is more powerful than a spell the characters can cast. You can kind of hand them the equivalent of a nuclear bomb and then see what they do with it. And ciphers in Numenera, if you have too many of them, they become unstable. So one thing you can do is essentially say, if you're carrying around, if every, if an individual is carrying around more than three relics, when they cast a relic, they have to roll in the wild magic table to see what, to see what other effect occurs. They might actually think that's fun. They might actually do it just to see. It could, it adds a bit of volatility to, to an item. That's sort of the stick approach, right? That they become unstable and it means that they're going to want to use them so that they can get to the point where they're below that level of instability. You could also say that you just can't carry more than three of these things. That when you try to bring a fourth in, that one of them will randomly either blow up, which is a good time, or they will just, one of them will cease to exist. The energy from one will get absorbed into the others and disappear. So that's a way to make sure that they don't hold too many of them. But the hoarding mentality is kind of a personality trait. You'll see this in video games. And, and, and there's all the talk about you playing through these big role-playing games where you're collecting all your consumables and you never actually use them all and you finish the game and now you're done. And you're like, man, I never did use that pine resin to, for my blade so I could you know, do a fire sword. I never bothered to use it. There's a Dark Souls reference if you didn't get it. In some cases, I don't worry about it, right? If the players want to hoard them, they hoard them. If they use them. The interesting thing is that to me, the real fun part of a magic item is when they receive it. Certainly when they use it, it can be very cool. But I don't really hand them out there because I expect that they will all get used all the time. I hand them out because treasure is fun for people to get, right? And if they hoard it. And I think that's okay. If they get an item and they're excited and then it disappears and they forgot to put it on the character sheet and it's never shown again, that the excitement of them getting it was still a good part, right? Now it's great when they pull it out and I've seen them where like they're in a crazy battle with a certain situation and they pull out that one use, that one item that is perfect for this time and they use it, that feels really great. So there's definitely an advantage there. But I don't, I don't know that I worry too much about trying to manage the player's inventory for them. They will do it. If they're new players, you might say, hey, keep in mind. And if you really want to push it, the way to push it, I think, would be to mention to them that they can't carry more than these. But that means you're going to have to keep track of them, too, because they're going to forget. And they're just going to throw it in the bag. And then you go, oh, you have five? Yeah, two of them are dead now. And then it's, oh, it's my favorite one. So that's definitely a carrot and stick kind of approach. As far as not using their powerful spells... Joe Joe M, I hope that answers your question. And Robert S, you had a kind of a part two, which is using your more powerful spells. 
talk, talk I think talking to them, talking asking them what spells that they've learned and then describing maybe they don't understand how those spells work. But it's a little bit of the hoarding mentality here too. It's kind of surprising. I, I, I typically don't find this problem. I certainly see it with warlocks where they'll throw Elder Blast if they don't have to. But I think that idea of setting up situations that really exemplify the use of, of abilities that they've got isn't so bad. And letting them roll checks that their character, this is one where the character knowledge is better than the player knowledge. Don't punish the player. Don't punish the character because the player's not thinking of something. Your character knows you have Banish. I'm gonna pick on Banish today. The character knows that you have Banish and knows it has Banish and knows that Banish might work well against that horde of giants that's coming out. Hey, it can get one less giant. But you might mention it. So have a roll and insight check or based on your insight, you think that it'd be pretty convenient to get rid of one of these. So I think that can be, I think that can be a, a way that works. But yeah, never discount the DM uh, never discount direct prompting from a DM. I don't think that's a problem. I, I Stepping out of character, stepping out of the world and bringing things up that'll make the game more fun. We should feel free to do that, I think. Robert, I hope that answers your question. Look at this. We're like down to three. So I got three and then I got a couple more, but we're carving through. Sarian O says, I've been running Ghost of Saltmarsh and wanted to understand how you might use your encounter builder with homebrew monsters. I've built some lizard folk variants that tie into the black dragon and are a bit stronger, but I'm struggling to balance the encounters that involve them for my players. Once you've started customizing monsters for your players, I think at that point you can kind of let go of challenge rating. We just talked a lot about challenge rating and that idea that of, of the Bayesian approach towards challenge rating. Start off with a base rate and then based on specific circumstances of understanding the characters and understanding the monsters, you know, you'll, you'll have a better feeling for challenge. And I think that is the case here. An easy way is to, and this is how the pros do it, right? When the pros are building monsters, they often take a look at how does this monster compare to other existing monsters? And I would do it with monster manual monsters, right? So you go to the monster manual and take a look. And an easy approach is start with like your goblin, your orc, your ogre, your hill giant, your frost giant, fire giant, storm giant. Look, the, the giants, that, that approach, look at those guys and say, how does it stack up with those? And that gives you a general idea of the challenge rating of those. Do they hit as hard as a hill giant does? Or are they hitting as hard as like an ogre does? And use that use that idea to get a general idea of how powerful your monster is if you want to try to apply a challenge rating. You can also use the DMG. It's that table in the DMG for creating monsters on the fly. You can use that to get a general gauge of your challenge rating. You can also use that to build monsters, right? I think that's not a bad way to go. But I also would, I of course recommend reskinning. Last week I talked about like the hierarchy of monster customization, right? Lowest level, you don't customize them. You just run monsters that are in the monster books and run them as is. Two, the, the next layer is, uh, the next layer is just call them something different, right? Give them a different name and change the flavor without changing any mechanics. Three, change the mechanics slightly. Give an undead version of something. You have an ogre, they already have a zombie ogre, but you know, a hill giant, you want an undead hill giant, call it undead. Skeletal hill giant, call it a skeleton. And then give it the undead trait. Give it a couple of little blunt damage. Vulnerable to blunt damage, right? Immunities to other things. Change it with just a few stats. Number three is add a few big chunks of stuff. So this one has pack tactics or this doesn't have flaming swords. Customize it by adding kind of big things. Four is mash monsters together. Take two different monsters, take the stat blocks, find characteristics from one monster, apply it to the stat block of another monster. And now you have a variant that combines the two stat blocks. And then five is make monsters from scratch. And that is kind of the last resort, 
right? The f those first four should be done first. And then that, from a lazy DM standpoint, the lazy DM standpoint is start with the easiest thing to do and work your way down. Don't, don't start by customizing monsters, but it looks like you already did. So if you're struggling with, they're a bit stronger, how do I balance encounters? You're going to have to wing it and think about how the characters dealt with monsters that were similar to this. And, and then, and then of course, another thing you have is their wonderful tool that we DMs have are the dials, right? There's four dials and you can turn these dials to change battles. You can turn a couple of them during combat. So if you try things out and you're like, oh, that didn't, that, that was different than I expected. You can turn them up or down. The four dials are the number of monsters, how many monsters are in the battle. The monster's hit points, how many hit points do the monsters have? How many, how much damage do they do with an attack? And how many attacks do they get? And you can turn all those dials. The hit point dial is the easiest one to sort of turn and a lot of DMs do. Most DMs turn the hit point dial, even during a combat. If it turns out it was too hard, you can turn that dial down. It turns out it's too easy, turn it up. Damage, give them an extra attack. Boy, that adds a lot of damage. Or increase their damage. They light their swords on fire and they do an extra couple D6, a couple D6 fire damage. So... With all those dials, we can change things while we're playing and we can see how things go. And then don't turn the dials too much. Try a couple of them. If you've created some like powerful lizard folk variants that are like big bulky lizard folks, throw a couple at the party and see how they do. And then you'll have an idea of, okay, now if I throw a lot, what's that gonna be like? You'll have an idea of like how dangerous they were as you're trying them out. Doc's shoulder says, is there a specific calculation equation that used by Watsi to determine CR for monster? Or do they kind of eyeball it as well? So Doc's shoulder, I have the answer to this. So the first run we do, we have access to as well, which is the dungeon master's guide. The, the creating a monster table in, the, creating a monster chapter in the back of the dungeon master's guide. All of the material you need to build a monster pretty close to the way Watsi does it. My understanding is that Wizards of the Coast has a crazy ass Excel spreadsheet and they plug in all kinds of information in this spreadsheet and it calculates the challenge rating. And my understanding is they've been using this spreadsheet since the playtest days of 5e. And I, my opinion is it's got bugs. It's got things that's overweighting or underweighting and that accounts for weird variance in challenge rating. I think it also accounts for weird differences in monsters in some stuff. And I think they, I don't know if they're changing. I, I haven't heard. So we'll see if they are using new spreadsheets or new calculations to determine the monsters that are coming out now, because the monsters are coming out, have these different design, has a different design than the monsters uh, had originally. Uh, yeah. But really, I wouldn't worry about what Watsi does too much. I would worry about the results. But I instead, if I were, if I wanted to understand how monster challenge rating worked, I would look at the Dungeon Master's Guide rules. I think they still hold, they still hold up pretty well. So, Sarian, oh, thank you for that question. Topher M, Topher M, have you ever tried doing a fully improvised session? How would you do it? I don't think I have. I've come really close to not having, I, there was one time when I was like recruited at a bar to run a game for a bachelor, I think it was a bachelorette party at Gen Con a long time ago. And I was handed the adventure and said, go run this. And I was like, there's five pages of material here and I go run it in 30 seconds. And I was like, I, but the author was there and I asked her and said, what are the five major things that are happening in this adventure? What are the five things? And she said, this and this. I said, okay, got it. And I went over and ran it. So I think... I, I've talked about this before when I talk about the return of the lazy dungeon master. The premise of the return of the lazy dungeon master is that we can run, our games get better the less we prepare, but it is not to zero. So there's a, probably, a, in my opinion, there are definitely people who can go and improvise a game. They just go and they run with it and they're done. 
And then that's fine. If they can do that, that's great. I really can't do that. I need something. I need something at least to feel comfortable. So I think that there was a, I think that there's a tipping point. There's a drop off where if you don't have anything, you're probably going to be in a little bit of scramble. And that's where the steps of return come in. I, I think when we talk about there, there's a chapter in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master called Reducing the Steps. And it's the idea of based on what you've got, what steps can you eliminate? And then what steps do you still want to focus on? And I think there are some steps that we can safely eliminate if we're running a published adventure. And there's some other steps that we can that we should hang on to if we're running a homebrew adventure. A lot of it is like, how much do you have prepared ahead of time? How much of a published material do you already have can determine what steps you need? I think if I was told that, hey, Mike, we want you to run a game and we want it to run in five minutes, or we want you to run a game right now, I would say, awesome, I need 15 minutes. Give me 15 minutes. I would probably, in my 15 minutes, I would probably say, I need the hook of the adventure. I need to understand what my adventure is going to do. I need a strong start. I would do my secrets and clues. I would probably grab just tables of monsters, maybe a general location, probably a map from a Dyson Logos map. And I would try to go with that. And I would still be pretty rough. Another way would be to go run an adventure I've already run before. Like just grab grab one of my own adventures. I've got many. And to say, I'm going to run, I'm running the, the Star Song Tower adventure from Runes of the Grendelroot. Or I'm going to run any of my Runes of the Grendelroot adventures. I could just grab one of those and run because I've run them many times. So I, I might end up doing something like, I think the adventure generators in the Lazy DM's Companion, I think that would be an approach. Like gen- say, okay, which one of these plot lines am I going to run? I probably would do something like that. I probably, I think I could probably come up with an adventure in about 15 minutes with some hard rolling, some quick and hard rolling with the Lazy DM's Companion to give me some ideas. Not to pitch my new book, but I'm obsessed about it. So why wouldn't I talk about it? But I would, I think that if I needed stuff, I would, if I really was pressed for time, I would want a strong start, something to hook them into the adventure. I'd want to have a location for them to explore. I'd want a map for that location. I'd want inhabitants for that location, like kinds of monsters that they would face. And I'd want some secrets and clues. And I think like I would be pretty comfortable with that, but I would probably need at least 15 minutes to get that. And I think otherwise I'd be in a, I'd be in a hard case. And if I really had to run right now, I'd probably pull a book off my shelf and run an adventure I've already run. I think that would probably be the, the, the thing that I would do. DM says, any advice on helping our players to value their tool proficiencies? How can we use these in-game for our group to be more inventive? Thanks in advance. I Something that I've recently done, and we've seen this. Let's pull up my Notion. Whoops. So one of the things I started doing, and I've added into my Notion notebook, uh, is I track skills, right? I track the character's skills along with their other information and their languages. And I do this because I want to have as a DM hooks into the characters that I can yank on and pull in threads that I can tug on that make the players excited about the choices they made for their characters. I think having tool proficiencies in this list, I think the best thing you could probably do, the, the, the advice I'm going to offer, the, my, my experience would be, my, the, my idea would be, I would track what tool proficiencies they have. I would track it in their skill list. And that way you have something you can tug on. And during your step one of, of the eight steps, when you're reviewing the characters, you can look and say, 
ah, this person's trained in blacksmithing and they're in a town. Is there a way that I could tie their training in blacksmithing into this adventure? Is there something we could do? And I think that there's interesting ways to do it. But in order to do that, we have to keep track of it. And I think a way to keep track of it is to put their information inside this table or just or however you track your character information. Right. Put their information inside inside your tracker along with that so that you can track what skills and what tool proficiencies the characters have. And then during step when you're reviewing the characters, review those, look at their skills, look at their tool proficiencies. If you really want to pay attention to it, put their tool proficiencies, you know, start by looking at their tool proficiencies and say that they have them. Because, yeah, I, I, I think it's not out of hand. It's not uncommon to forget about it. Even the players forget about it. But that's something you can do is, is keep track of what their keep track of their skills, keep track of their of their proficiencies. And I think that can I think that can help. Any other ways? Think about what factions. So we have a player in my Wednesday game who took blacksmithing as a tool proficiency. No other part of his background really has anything to do with blacksmithing. He built used his blacksmithing abilities. It was really funny because he hung out with the, the the black iron dwarves in in Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. And every time he's back in town, they put him to work. They're like, hey, good job. Get over here. We got we got some swords to make. And they like and they bring him in and he's oh, okay. And he's like hammering swords. And he comes back. Everyone else is, man, I was great. I like hung out at the bar and I talked to people. He's like, I'm exhausted. I worked 12 hours at the blacksmiths. And it's just funny. But it had they were very the interaction between his character and their group took place in many downtime sessions thinking about it in downtime so when we're coming one of the tricks for good downtime sessions is building custom downtime options around the characters and one way to do that is to look at if they have tool proficiencies say during their downtime here are some of your options and here are some of the options based on your tool proficiencies that you can go do because you're a tra you're trained in the liar this group has come and asked you to hire on and go play do you want to do that and they could say yeah i'd like to but i got to do this other thing so they tie it into downtime activities. And I think that could be a good way. So those are, this is a good question. It's kind of specific because it's about tool proficiencies, but it's a good one in general to talk about how we can tug on skills and backgrounds and other things during downtime sessions or during other sessions. And it really shows the importance of tracking lots of stuff about the characters so that we're keeping it in mind uh, and doing it as part of step one. This is all step one of return, which is focus on the characters first, right? Start with the characters, think about what they got, think about their backgrounds, think about what's going on and use that to build out the rest of the adventure when you're planning your adventure. So really great question. Joseph C. asks, when the characters and their history and ties are in the thick of the plot, how do you avoid giving them plot armor? My players are adverse to resurrection magic, but the current adventures are all driven by their desires. When a character is so closely tied to a plot, how do I best handle this without giving them plot armor or just hoping that the party will continue on the adventure of the story? So when we talk about plot armor, are we talking about them getting killed? I get a little confused in this question in the idea of are they protected from something? And I wouldn't get too Game of Thrones about it, but I think it's okay to let unexpected stuff occur. And I think it's okay if they have a thick... And I think it's okay if we're having a thick plot and then suddenly something happens and a character does die and it changes those plot lines. I think that might be okay. I, I think it can be dangerous if your plot is so interwoven around a character that if something major happens to that character... I think that could be that could be a problem. And and we might want our plot to be a little more flexible to account for changes like that. So I think my general answers would be don't tie it too tightly. 
or some, or then you're kind of railroading. Then you're back to, I, uh, this thing has to happen if we want this adventure to go well. I think instead, if we think about the situation rather than the plot, right? I think when we replace plot with situation, a lot of things change. And we say, yes, one of the main villains is also the cousin of one of the characters, right? That's the situation. The plot of they're going to have to confront each other and maybe she'll be converted to be a good person. The, the villain will be converted to be a good person. That is, that's where things can kind of fall apart. So I would say if your plot is woven really thick, loosen it up so that different things can happen. Don't be afraid if a major plot arc ends in a way you didn't expect. And think about the situation and how the situation changes when certain things happen. I think there can be sometimes the most interesting things that happen in their game, many times the most interesting things that happen in our game are completely unexpected. So if we're talking about saving a character so they're not killed... It sounds like it because you're talking about resurrection magic. If we're talking about people not getting killed, I would go ahead and let them. And also, like, how many times does it happen? Like, I've had lots of characters die. I've had I've run lots of games, and the characters dying doesn't happen that often, even at high levels, particularly at high levels. If they're adverse to having resurrection magic, then maybe they're telling you it's okay if our characters die and the plot line goes away. So, yeah. I, I, I hope that helps. I, I think the, the main thing is make sure that your plot isn't so interwoven that it all falls apart if a character dies and, and maybe let them fail. Also, you seem to be, oh, look at this. Also, you, another magic item question. You seem to be giving out a lot of, ma lot of magic items. See, also, was because this was the second question. You seem to be giving out a lot of magic items. How do you keep the players both happy and not so overpowered that you struggle to balance encounters? I haven't found magic items to be particularly overpowering. Right. And I, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't when I give out a lot of magic items, most of the time they're relics. But I think giving out one permanent magic item per session or certainly per level is not so bad. The idea that basically every character in the game earns one magic item every tier. Right. Give or take. Maybe they earn a couple more. I think that's a pretty decent rate of magic item progression. And it's only every so often, there's only a few magic items that can cause a lot of trouble. There's this, there's a staff of the Druid. I'm trying to remember the name of this thing. My, my wife's character has it. And it's got a lot of really powerful stuff. And she got it pretty early on. Staff of the, staff of the Woodlands? Let's see. Yeah, Staff of the Woodlands. Right? This, the Staff of the Woodlands is a, it's a rare item. But she got it pretty early. And I think it was in Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I didn't pick this. And it's got so many spells that it can cast. But the killer is that it can use an action to cast Pass Without Trace for free. And Pass Without Trace is a really hard spell to balance, I found. Because it offers a plus 10, trying to figure out where Pass Without Trace works is plus 10 bonus to dexterity stealth checks and can't be tracked except by magical means. It is so... That's like... I've had to limit that and say that doesn't work indoors. I basically said like when you're in a dungeon, the kind of stuff that this does won't prevent people seeing you. It won't prevent people seeing you if they're in the room with you. It's more like when you're in, out in the woods. I've had to kind of limit this thing because otherwise it's way plus 10 bonus to decks. It's crazy good. They have fighters are getting a 26, a 26 on their checks. So it's really tough. So every so often an overpowered item like this ends up and you just kind of deal with it. The other ones are like the Instrument of the Bards. Instrument of the Bards is another. In fact, they have an uncommon version of Instrument of the Bards, right? The uncommon ones, there's three, Das Lut, 
the bandolier and the whatever the hell that thing is. These cast a lot of spells. And I think there was one of them. I'm trying to remember which one. I mean, I, oh, they all, right? So think about it. It's an uncommon magic item. So they could get it pretty low level. Fly, invisibility, levitate, protection from evil and good. Plus all of these spells. That is a tremendous amount of spells that they can cast. And I think they could cast each spell once. Really, like, so there's certain ability, there's certain ones, like all of these should be rare or very rare. Like uncommon is crazy good. So sometimes we have to be careful about the magic items. And, and it's worth taking a look at them before you hand them out. Like I wish I'd taken a look at that stuff at the Druid. Uh, otherwise, like your typical plus one weapons, like the, the, I'll tell you the, the, the magic items that I reward that work really well. They don't break the balance of the game. They're they're loved by players. Are the weapons and armor that have a single use of a particular spell. I was talking about this before. And what I like about these is that you can, you get to decide how balanced it is because you're picking the spell that it has. And if you put like a fireball on something, well, it's going to be used all the time. But if you put something like a relatively misty step, a special plus one dagger that casts misty step once per day, casting misty step once isn't going to break a game. They can only do it one per day as an example. And misty step isn't so crazy powerful, but giving it to your rogue, they're going to feel really good. It doesn't completely overpower them, but it's good. But I, I do recommend, I, I, I don't, think we have to be too stingy with magic items. There was this idea that 5e is a low magic setting and we shouldn't give them out a lot. I think you can give out more than we think with some exceptions that there's particular items that really are power. Like those two abilities, the Staff of the Woodlands and the Instrument of the Bards, those to me are like Staff of Power level items. They are really good. And I would be wary about giving those out until they get to like tier two and stuff like that. I hope that answers your question. Hey, my pal Rex from Hungary is here. Hi, Rex. Welcome. What time is it there in Hungary? Good to see you. Yeah, Pass Without Trace, we talk about that. I'm just reading the chat here. Yeah, so somebody brings up like um, putting True Strike on a weapon. If you had or like a Sword of Accuracy, a really powerful sword, and it could cast the spell True Strike once. And you might even say it can cast True Strike as a bonus action because you can pick the action type that it uses. And now you have a really powerful item. And the thing is like bonus actions, well, people use bonus actions for lots of different things. So like a rogue with that, well, they already have aim. So they don't even get a benefit, but somebody else might. So... You know, there's definitely things you could do. Yeah, true strike on a bow that you could cast as a bonus action would be pretty cool. And it still is okay because actions are limiting. If you make it take a bonus action, that's limiting. And it only works on the next turn. Is that right? So you can't do it right now. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, that, that could be a that could be a factor. Cantrips. Giving getting items with cantrips are good because everybody had cantrips already. So it's not really that overpowering. So I would say be more willing to give magic items than you might be willing to, than you might think about. Don't worry about an unbalancing things. Be careful about which ones. Like I wouldn't give plus three items out. A plus three shield, I think would be really pretty rough because armor class can go up so high already. So stuff like that. But I hope that answers your question. And then relics. I love the single use magic items, which we've been talking about a lot today. Single use magic items are great because they're one use. As we heard, some people never even use them. So you don't have to worry about unbalancing your game. And it only works once, which means if it unbalances your game, it's only at that moment, right? It's only that one time. If you put reverse gravity on a coin and they flick the coin and it lands and does reverse gravity and shoots a bunch of people in the air, that's awesome. And it's totally cinematic. And they're not going to use it every battle because they've just used it and it's gone. That's why relics are powerful. Relics are really good. Hey, my mom is here. Hi, mom. Our, I think it's our last question. Scipio. My friend Scipio, you get the last question of the month. Isn't that exciting? I hope it's really good. I hope this is a good question. We're going we're gonna to be hard about it. 
in your rhyme game, you've given several PCs evolving situations like the Illithid Symbiote, which is a nice source of PC-based secrets and clues that doesn't depend on tapping or retconning the backstory. Any suggestions for do's and don'ts? Well, so I cheated with the Frost Maiden because it has those, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden specifically has those character, I forget what they call them. Yeah, no pressure. What are they called? They call them character secrets. Okay. And so they have a list of these character secrets that you roll on and each character gets them. I'll give you one tip that I use when I drop these character secrets in. I made sure that the players didn't know what secrets were available so that they wouldn't think what somebody else got. That I had them roll and then I offered it to them one-on-one and said, do you want this secret? And if you don't want it, you can throw it back. So I'll give two tips both which worked well with Front Rhyme of the Frostbane. Tip one is, if you come up with a list of potential secrets like this that you're going to apply to a character, make sure they don't know the whole list so they can't think about what other ones were on there and then wonder whether or not one of the other characters has it. And then two, give them the option of changing it or changing the flavor of it. I had one player who picked one and it really didn't work out and we had to, we had to deal with that. So... You definitely give, don't take the agency away from the player to determine what kind of secrets that they have, particularly when it's a detrimental secret. Oh, you've got a a really bad one, like a slot host, right? Like you've got a slot in your chest that's going to blow out your, your chest is going to burst out like alien. That's a terrible one. Far worse is that you're a fan of Drizzt. You definitely don't want to offer that one up without them being able to say, no, I'm not. He's angsty. He's so angsty. Uh, So... I think that those, I think that those are potential ways. I think that, and so other, I'm generally apprehensive about the, the secrets that other characters don't know. I think it works well with Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. I don't think it's necessarily something I would do all of the time. It doesn't necessarily work in an Eberron game, but I do think that idea of evolving backgrounds works, works really well. And I think that having that, like the quest giver in my Eberron game was the uncle of one of the characters that worked really well it was a fun thing the fact that his uncle kept showing up and asking him to do stuff was really a really good time i liked that a lot and i recommend the more you can tie like the characters to your quest giving npc that they know them and why they know them and how they know them i think that can work out sometimes the other thing is to go ahead and let them fade away if they aren't getting a lot of traction if the player's not into that that much that means you don't necessarily need to be into it that much and the things that are happening in the game matter more than the things that happened before the game began. This is like something about the relationships between characters because those relationships just happened and they're all in the past that can work well to to bond characters together, but their new bonds are going to be the things that happen in the game. So you don't have to worry about them. Same thing with like your patrons, right? If you have a patron that's offering quests, sometimes the patron fades away as they go on the adventures and the quest, the, the, the patron can show back up again. Oh yeah. Hey, how's it going? Good. Oh, you've been doing great work. They can kind of come back again, but really once the characters are driven with their own motivations, you don't have to worry about it too much. So I think that can, I think that can work, but I don't, yeah, I don't know that I would do the secret thing too often. I think for Frostmaiden in particular, it works well, but I don't know. I don't know that that is something that I would do that I would do every time. Anybody else in chat have a question that based on any of the stuff we've talked about today or any other question that they'd like to talk about? And we can do a question or two from chat and then I think we will call it a day. Uh, do players have to discover what a magic item... Oh, that's a good question. Okay, so do players have to discover what a magic what magic items do or does? So I think by the rules of the game, if they spend an hour with the item, they 
can understand what it does. If it's a potion, they can take a sip. I usually just tell them. I'll have people like roll a roll a check. I'll usually have people roll like an arcana check to learn it. Uh, or I just tell them, right? Because it depends on how interesting it is to not know. I think that, I, I think that, I, I err on the side of telling them too much, but also you want the identify spell to do something. So I think that can be useful. But a lot of times they're just going to take a short rest and figure it out. Other times, if it's like something that I want them to get a hand, like as soon as they put their hand on it, if it's built for that character, when they put their hands on it, it sort of auto attunes. It attunes to them automatically. It's like a magnet and it's just and it's just set. I think that can work well. Have you ever converted a 3.5 adventure to 5e? No. One nice thing about 5e though is I think that you can really convert previous adventures pretty easily just by replacing the monsters that exist in the adventure with monsters from the monster manual and most of the time you can just do a one-for-one -one swap and if you can't if it's a unique monster you can reskin so i think actually converting old adventures to new adventures are, are pretty good and i think if you've got old adventures that you like that can work all work well hundrex demon says we've literally just finished a fistful of copper adventure oh that's cool and it was a lot of fun i created three other adventuring teams while i adventure confronted hobgoblins and other attack the orcs Third, defended the Enclave. Yeah, so Fistful of Copper is, of course, based on uh, Fistful of Dollars, which is also based on the, the movie um, Senjuro, Yojimbo, by Akira Kurosawa. And it is a great thing of the party is involved between two warring gangs. Great situation. Endgame was an astonishingly chaotic battle. That's how it's intended, in which everyone really enjoyed. Because the icing spell that came out of the Fizzband's book is a very rough control against low-level monsters. Yes, very cool. Do you have any advice for creating rivals for your party? Do it is pretty cool. We have a rival party in my Frostmaiden game. Next week, we'll talk about some interesting things that happen between the rival party and the main characters in my Frostmaiden game next week. I wouldn't worry about statting them out. So I did a article for Monty, or for Matt Colville, Matt Colville Design MCDM called the Grim Accord, which is a tier one slash tier two group of rival adventures that you can throw in your party. So there are stat blocks out there. I would use the typical, my, one piece of advice I'll get is don't get too funky trying to make custom stat blocks for them. Just use the NPC stat blocks that exist in the Monster Manual or Volo's Guide. They, they work well enough on their own. And do it. It's cool. Uh, have them meet in situations where they're not going to get a combat. Maybe they should both show up at a bar so they can see each other. Secrets and Clues, great way for the characters to learn about the, what the rival party is up to. Again, Raiders of the Lost Ark with Belloc and Indiana Jones, great way to handle rivals. I think they can work really well. And then build as a situation, like what, and this is what's happening in the Frostmating game. Really interesting how the characters will react to the, what the rivals are doing and how the rivals are reacting to the characters. Really fun situation-based adventure where you're not plotting it out. I really like that. My campaign finale is coming. Any advice for making the less than ideal ending still narratively satisfying? Is there a reason why it's the less than ideal ending? Like, it, it, does it have to be? I would try to, it's the end, right? This is the Game of Thrones problem. Just... If it's the end, just make it good. Look at Breaking Bad and look at Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones, in my opinion, everybody's got an opinion. And I think about half of the people liked it, but that doesn't seem like a lot when it's like your big finale. And considering that people loved the season before. Don't, so Game of Thrones had a very disappointing ending in, in my mind in so many different ways. And I could go on and on about it. I'm not going to, but it's so disappointing. But then you look at Breaking Bad, right? And both shows were long-standing shows that were situation-based shows where lots of things changed throughout the shows right character driven they were character driven stories in breaking bad the writers knew we have to tie all this up and we want to tie it up satisfying so in a show where our hero our, our anti-hero things don't typically go his way he's very smart and he does a bunch of sciencey stuff 
But things don't always typically go that way. When they do go his way, dealing with Gustavo Fring, it's kind of miraculous. And you're like, holy cow. But then other things don't go his way. Like the whole previous season where he, where, where you know, what, what happens with them with the neo-Nazis and Hank and all that stuff. Things don't go his way. But they knew they needed to tie it up. So they said, you know what? We're not going to have any major surprises at the end here. We're not going to have a dramatic shift. Instead, it's going to be Walt tying up the, his loose ends. And that's what they did. And then you look at Game of Thrones and say, no, we're going to do another one of big twists in the plot line. And you're like, why? Like another big twist now? You got one episode left. And so they kept going with the twist and now it was unsatisfying. So my argument would be try to go for the satisfying ending. Find a way to turn it into a satisfying ending because it's the end. It's the last thing that's going to happen. And I, of course, I love the one year later approach. Like what one year later, what happens with your characters? In the no prep department, if you have to do a la game last minute with no prep, what questions would you ask players to build one from scratch? I, I don't think I'd probably do that. I, I, I know that there's a bunch of like world building exercise you could do with characters i certainly support it i don't think it's really my style i would just run an adventure i think i don't think i would do well trying to build it i think i've done stuff like that before and it was it, i felt behind the whole game how do you keep players engaged in session after pc death that's a good question find a way to bring him back give him an npc give him a stat block for an npc of, of somebody they meet let them control the animal companion of another character Definitely have something for them to do. What kind of ambience does the your Rhyme of the Frostman game have? I don't know. I haven't really thought about ambient background ambience. I, I always try to bring on the endless night and the fact that it's always dark and cold. But I don't think I'm particularly great on, on constantly getting the theme. Any suggestions for good books, movies, games for adventure creation? Yes, I do. And you can get them three different ways. Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master has a whole bunch of books, games, movies, and TV shows that I, I recommend. There is now a page in the Lazy DMs Companion that is also going to have the same thing, and patrons have access to that same list. Patrons of Sly Flourish have access to two PDFs, uh, Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. Volume 1 is all of the original material that is now getting rebuilt for the Lazy DMs Companion. So if you want to see all the stuff that's in the Lazy DMs Companion, it's all available in Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 1, available to all patrons. Volume 2 is everything that is similar to this that is not going to be in the Companion. And that's a book that's going to evolve month to month. In this, I think it's, is it the last page? It is. The last page is inspirational material. Some of this stuff, let's see. It augments the list that's found in chapter 25 in the appendix of and the appendix of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. So I I don't think this is everything. Lots of movies. So I recommend some other tabletop RPGs to play. 13th Age, Blades in the Dark, Fate Condensed, Iron Sworn, Lady Blackbird, Mjorkberg, Numenera, Old School Essentials, Shadow of the Demon Lord, Thousand-Year-Old Vampire. Books and Comets, Berserk, The Collapsing Empire, East of West, First 15 Lives of Harry, August, excellent book. Gideon the Ninth, NPCs, Red Shirts, The Three-Body Problem, and We Are Legion, We Are Bob. Those augment because there's other books that are listed in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master as well. TV shows, Babylon 5, Cadfile, Castlevania, Dark, The Expanse, Love, Death, and Robots, Mandalorian, Mr. Robot, Stranger Things, Kingdom, and The All Excellent. And then lots of movies. I'm not going to go through every one of these movies, but there's lots and lots of good movies. Alien, I'll just pick a few. Aliens, Blade Runner, Color Out of Space, Doctor Strange, Gangs of New York, Hellraiser 2, my favorite Hellraiser movie, John Wick, The Keep, Mandy, Prince of Darkness, The Ritual, Ritual is really fun, Snowpiercer, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, lots of different stuff. So yes, lots. Does Grendel Root have good suitability for a small party size? I think so. 
I think you could run that and it would be, I think it would be good. The key with running with a small party is re reduce the number of monsters that they face. Always reduce the number of monsters they face. I don't think there's any legendary creatures in there. And then if they're facing like really big monsters, dial the hit points down so that they become a little bit more, uh, a little bit better. Yes. I think we are going to call it a day. So I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me on Twitch today for this special extended episode of the Lazy DMs Companion. Always a great pleasure to talk to you guys. I want to thank you for watching on YouTube and listening on listening on the podcast. If you want to help me out, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can support me directly on Patreon. You can sign up for the, you can subscribe to the videos on YouTube or you can pick up any of my books. So thank you all very much. We got through all the questions today. I'm very excited. Next month, we start with a whole new set of brand new questions. So that would be awesome. Everybody have a great day. Have a happy holidays. And I will see you all next week. Take care.